0: I gave you this handout, which, um, as I, I was struggling with this next section we're going to deal with in the warning passage, which I don't know if we'll get to today or not, but I found this as I was looking through some things. It's really, um, it's quite a magnificent summary of the book of Hebrews. It, it really is. So if you take a look at it, um, at the bottom part, I'll, I'll mention the top part in a minute, The bottom part, Jesus Christ supersedes all things. That could be a thesis statement for the book. And you see the various parts of the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, etc., and the argument it's making about Christ. That's why Hebrews is probably, next to the book of Romans, is probably the most theologically important book in the New Testament. There is no book, in the New Testament that captures so thoroughly and comprehensively who Jesus is. And that's why it's a hard book to work through. I mean, it is one of the most difficult books uh, theologically to study without almost getting overwhelmed. Uh, And it's a hard book. Uh, uh, Many pastors stay away from it in terms of preaching from the pulpit because it is so difficult to keep everybody focused on what is really going on and what makes it difficult Or, I should maybe say, one of its greatest challenges are these warning passages. And, uh, you know, if you, you, I handed this out, so I'm sure you have it. But this, we're going to be, I, I don't know if we're going to get to this today, but we're just about on the verge of the third warning passage. And I have a major handout I want to give you on that. So, I'm so thankful that my church. Uh, allows me to use the copier there, because uh, otherwise I wouldn't be able to copy all this stuff. But A couple of months ago I asked my boss, I I teach four Bible studies, and uh, there are times when I want to make copies. I don't make copies of all the notes, but handout, he said, absolutely do it, so thank my boss for allowing me to use the paper which makes these copies, so he's very gracious on that. I think we'll get started then. I want to pick up in verse 14. If you have your Bible, you should have it open to that. And let me just, again, because a couple of you haven't been here for a while, particularly Rob, he doesn't even know we're in Hebrews. He thinks we're still back in Exodus or something. <laughs> but anyway, um, as that chart I just gave you shows, is about the preeminence of Jesus. He is preeminent, superior, revelation of God, the first three verses of chapter 1. He's superior to the angels which we have studied pretty thoroughly. He is superior to Moses. And now we're shifting to Jesus is the superior or preeminent high priest. And that thesis of the high priesthood of Jesus is something that's not really developed in any other book of the New Testament. It's mentioned, but here it's developed thoroughly. Um So, in verse 14, I want to pick up on that, but let me stop for just a moment, and let's just talk briefly about the role of the high priest. Um, Now, you know, there was the priesthood, which consisted of the Levitical priests, and there were sort of divisions, they had different responsibilities. But primarily, the priesthood of ancient Israel was to oversee the sacrifices, and I mean, all the ritual and everything that was involved with that, and secondly, to teach the law. To the people, so those two responsibilities, and there are some others, but those two pri- responsibilities primarily were how they functioned. The high priest, as the name implies, was at the peak, the top of this pinnacle of priesthood. There's a little bit of a hierarchy. Among other things, and he had a lot of responsibilities, but among other things, he would then go, in in, go into the holy of holies, you know, the inner sanctuary part of the temple the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, and would uh, offer the the sacrifice, uh, put the blood on the mercy seat, essentially is what he did, and the number of things that he was responsible for. So that, that role as sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement was the key for atoning, atone in Hebrew means to cover, atoning for the sins of the people for another year. It was done once a year. So if you keep all of that in mind, that Jesus is declared to be our high priest, we're gonna have to factor through what the high priest of the old covenant did and what the high priest of the new covenant does. And so that's what we're gonna be developing. That's what the author is gonna be developing for us. So he just declares in verse 14, since then we have a great high priest. Now, we've talked, we read this last week, but I'm going to start again. That's reminding us of something. The Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, had a high priest. The New Covenant has a high priest. It's Jesus. So just think of those parallels, keep that parallel. And so the New Covenant's high priest is Jesus, who passed through the heavens. That's a reference to his ascension. And now seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus, the Son of God, since we believe that, that he's our high priest, who's ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, let us hold fast our confession. Another way of thinking of hold fast would be persevere, endure our confession, a confession Uh, can mean the verb where you're confessing, agreeing with God about your sin, or a statement of what you believe. Some of you are familiar with some of the confessions of church history like the uh, Augsburg Confession not resonating with anybody the Heidelberg Confession and some of these great confessions. The Baptists have a confession that was put together in London in the 1700s It's just a statement of what you believe So that's how, let's hold fast to what we believe now, that's one of the major themes of the book of, of, of Hebrews, because these Jewish Christians are, are embracing Jesus, but the tendency is to go back into their old rituals and practices. That makes sense, because of their, you know, by, at the time of, of, of the writing of this book, that's 1,500 years of church, of their tradition. You mean you have to give all that up? Well, yeah, in a sense, because Christ fulfilled it all. Now push on, press on persevere go forward don't go backward and so he says he's giving him another reason to go forward jesus is our high priest and then he explains this in verse 15 for there is one of explanation where he explains this for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin So the author is establishing for us a very practical explanation of Jesus as a high priest. It's very practical. Our high priest knows what it's like to be tempted. He's just like us. He's a human, yet without sin, because he's the God-man. So he's, he's giving an explanation of why we should hold fast. Because the high priest of the new covenant is not like the high priest of the old covenant. The high priest of the new covenant is without sin. Now that's a profound thought for the Jewish Christian in about A.D. 60 or so when the book was written. For a Christian or a Jewish person who's become a Christian to think about that. Our high priest in the old order was a sinner just like I am. But the high priest of the new order, the new covenant, is without sin. So all of a sudden, the the Jewish believer is to understand there is a significant substantive difference between the high priests and that Jesus is our high priest. He's going to explain what all that means and detail all that means in a little bit. Let us, so, the conclusion to this, if he is our high priest and he's without sin, the consequence of that is let us then, could translate that therefore, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Now, process and think about that as a Jew. Did you ever talk about personally and individually drawing near to God? Not really. You could pray to Him, but there always, I know you know this, but I want to restate it. There was always the mediating role of the priest. You understand what I mean? The priest would be your mediator, he's your intermediary. It is the high priest that goes in and offers uh, blood on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement. You don't do that. And so the author is saying, because Jesus is our high priest, perfect, without sin, knows what it's like to be tempted and so on, we therefore can, with confidence, boldness, with courage, draw near to God, the throne of grace. And it's, it's really fascinating, he calls it the throne of grace, because it isn't that we earned this. It isn't that we merited this. It's that God makes this available to us because Jesus is our high priest. Now, there's one other thing to remember. He doesn't talk about it. He's going to talk about it a little bit later on. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, what happened to the curtain separating the holy place and the holy of holies? Remember, it was torn in two. It, you know, it literally was torn in two. It's opened that was immensely and symbolically important because that meant now that the Jewish person who, that was such the sacred place, the Jewish person now understands that that barrier between intimacy with God and you as the individual person has now been broken down because Jesus fulfilled it, completed it, it's over, the old order's done, don't need that anymore. And so the author is implying that here we now cuz the temple curtain has been torn we now have the right and the privilege with great confidence to draw near personally to god to the throne of grace now and this is a this is this is just a radical revolutionary idea for a jewish person you have 24/7 access to god through jesus there's no more curtain there's no more separation between you and God. Now you have total open access to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Those two words. God always deals with us on the basis of grace and mercy. Not what we deserve, but on his grace and mercy, which is provided through Christ. So, these three verses, which now he's going to elaborate on for quite a few chapters here, laid, laid down a framework for a Jewish person in the A.D. 60s, something, whenever the book exactly was written, struggling with all of the traditions, pulling them back into the Judaism, Say so there is absolutely no reason for me to go back. Because what he's trying to do... No, I really want you to... Make sure you're grasping the power and significance of this. Here's, here's the law and everything that's involved with. If I just put a bunch of ellipsis points, everything that's involved with it the sacrificial system, the feast days, all that <clears> stuff. <throat> here's the law, okay? Now here's Christ. And we've just been learning that he is our high priest and so on, okay? Now, here's where you are now. Now, I'm I'm talking about as a Jewish person in the A.D. 60s. If you put your, this is where you are now. He's your high priest. And now you have the right with confidence to come to the throne of grace and enable enable to to experience the grace and mercy of God in time of need, because your high priest is like you, fully human, and always tempted like you, yet without sin. So if all of that is true, why in the world do you want to go back here? Why do you want to do that? What possible reason is it for you to go back and re-embrace all this stuff? Or add all this stuff to this? You see what he's doing? He's trying to complete this compelling reason... For these Jewish Christians who are struggling with this, their identity and their ethnic heritage and their families who don't understand what they've done, why they're doing it, so understand, you have to understand the superior position you have here. Why in the world do you want to go back, go forward with Christ? Amen. You see, you see I mean, thank you. <laughs> but I mean, you see what he's doing. I mean, you really start to understand the context in which he's making this you can understand why this book is so important for a Jewish person to read and study. Because it's laying the case. This is what it's all about. (coughs) And if you put your faith in it, here's where you are, go forward, the author keeps saying. Why do you want to go back? Jeff?
1: How significant were these verses and this concept in Martin Luther's? uh...
0: Huge. Huge. (laughs) You want me to explain it? Jim, I, know why, I think I know why Jim said Because Luther taught the priesthood of the believer. Luther taught you don't need a priest to mediate for you. And see, I mean, that was one of the trappings that developed, uh, unfortunately, in my judgment anyway, unfortunately, in the institutionalized Roman Catholic Church. That the church is your intermediary between you and Christ. We mediate the blessings of God through the seven sacraments, through the priesthood, through all that kind of stuff. So don't you go reading the Bible on your own. Don't you go on all those things. And Luther said, and the, look at Hebrews had an enormous influence on him. The book of Hebrews says, I don't need a priesthood. Jesus is my high priest. I have 24-7 access to God. I can go to the throne of grace in time of need. It doesn't say go to your priest who then goes to Christ. It doesn't say that. It says you go to the throne of grace directly. Why? Because Jesus is your high priest. So, uh, you know, again, I don't want to get into the denominational conflicts in our world today, but a Roman Catholic in, in, with intellectual honesty reading this is going to have to have some questions about what their church is teaching in terms of what they needed. How
1: the church put
0: the veil put the, uh, the back up? In a, in a sense, they do it's they never turn it
1: down yeah it right. a terribly freeing concept for oh. you know,
0: oh.
1: he is writing to us today that is to recognize I'm especially caught by the, the whole idea that he sympathizes with us because he's been tempted in the same ways it's almost comprehensible for me to understand that thing you know?
0: Jim there is no other world religion that has that teaching that God really does understand and sympathizes and empathizes and knows what it's like to be tempted, to be lonely, to be abandoned, to be betrayed, to be hurt. Jesus does. There's an old hymn of the church, I may have mentioned that, but there's an old hymn of the church that has part of the lyric, no one understands like Jesus. That is so true. And I mean, I love your your work. That is so liberating. That is so free, that's so dynamic. In terms of our faith, I mean, goodness, my God, whom I pray to, Lord, I'm really hurting. I am really struggling, with and Jesus says, "I understand." And that isn't just a platitude; He understands. And so, I mean, this, in terms of in the context of when the book was originally written, this is the message the author is trying to get these people to grasp. You go forward; don't go backward. Why do you want to add this to where you want to add this? doesn't make sense. But the appeal of it is real.
2: Joe, so, uh, you, you were saying that go back to uh, now, was there a, a synagogue there? I mean, because talking, he's talking to a lot of Jews, right?
0: Well, virtually the original audience of the book were Jewish, Christians. Yeah.
2: And so there were synagogues there, and he was saying, don't go back, you know, don't go back to that. And that's the point you're making here, because you don't have to. Now, would they go back? The ones that were kind of like not sure of themselves and this new concept. Would they go back to the synagogue and and maybe engage in that again? Or?
0: Well, I mean, you're asking uh, you're asking something kind of specific there. The, yes, we ha- I mean we do have evidence, and even in the, in, the, in the New Testament in the book of Acts, even. We we do have evidence. Yeah, they did. Jewish Christians would go back to the synagogue, um, and that can be done in one of two ways: go back to the synagogue to hear the because you know it's largely you didn't have your own Bible to hear the scriptures read, to uh, be reminded of all that the scriptures are saying about Messiah and so on, with the understanding that Jesus is my Messiah and all this is fulfilled. But as the church grows, I mean, the church where you have the local churches being planted, then the, the, the switch starts to occur. We're no longer going to synagogue, we're no going to church fellowship. But as you know from, and I don't know if you want me to go that way, but as the church grows, that becomes one of the real challenges. Can Jew and Gentile really worship and fellowship together? Jewish Christian, Gentile Christian fellowship. And ideally, that's what they wanted to happen. Antioch was a place where it was happening. But as the church grew, that became more and more of a challenge, and that's why Paul will write in the book of Galatians, Galatians three twenty, twenty-eight. There in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Jew, Greek, uh, Jew, uh, Jew nor Gentile. There's no slave nor free. There's no male nor female. Everybody's equal at the cross. Ephesians two eleven through twenty-two. The Jew and the Gentile have equality in terms of new covenant blessings.
2: How is, that, how is that affecting the women then? If in fact <clears> that is available to traditionally women were subjected to a secondary.
0: Movement, oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and
2: now they're not through this message of Christ. That's
0: right. Well, those who study history honestly will argue and agree that the most liberating force for women has been Christianity. It hasn't been Islam. It hasn't been Hinduism, if you know anything about those two. Highly patriarchal, very authoritative world views. But Christianity has been a liberating force for women, and yet that pool of patriarchy and all that still, men understanding, being head of your wife means you beat them into submission. That's not what the New Testament teaching so, I mean, but still, that, that liberating question, I wrote an article uh, one time uh, on women of the New Testament, and that research, I, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe how many women were mentioned in the New Testament. When you look at uh, Romans 16, I think there are 30, if I remember, there are 30 individuals mentioned in there. 16 of the 30 are women. The financial supporters of Jesus' ministry, according to Luke chapter 8, were women. Who were the first ones to testify to the resurrection of Jesus? Women. So that all is incredibly instructive in what living out Galatians three twenty-eight really meant. But you know, anyway. Yes. And where did Paul go? The very first place he
1: went to New John. Where did he go? Where did what? Where did Paul go? The very first place.
0: Yes, that's right. right. That's right to give this liberating message. Some accepted, some didn't. So, you know, I I actually didn't want to spend this much time on these verses because this is an introduction. But do, do you, both in terms of, for a Jewish person in the first century to understand this, but even for you and me in 2019 to understand, these verses are extremely powerful verses in terms of our faith in terms of our practice, in terms of our identity, in terms of our relationship with living God. I mean, just verse 16 alone, there is nothing preventing you from going to the Father in prayer and talking to him and asking him for grace and mercy. I mean, not there is nothing. I mean, that's just, wow, that's just incredibly liberating. i got one more question. <laughs> Yep. A lot of, there are still Protestant churches that
2: <clears throat> do preach that you can lose your salvation instead of breaking fellowship which actually can occur, breaking fellowship but can you comment on that point of, that once we are saved we, if we are have a contrite heart and, and confess it to the Lord Jesus Christ <clears throat> then we can restore that fellowship. How would how you comment on
0: that, just to address that briefly? When I was just starting out as a preacher many, many, many years ago, one of my first messages was entitled, God is not an Indian giver. Now, you could no way use that as a sermon title today. Uh, but... I, you know, that was way back in, in the 80s, uh, 1980s. But I don't know if you even know what that meant. But when I grew up, th- there was a little thing in my baseball teams, don't be an Indian giver, where you give something and take it back. That's what that meant. It's a horrible, today you can't possibly use that. The Bible wants us to understand salvation as a gift not as something you earned. It's a gift. And it's a gift from a gracious, compassionate, loving God. And I I know I've mentioned that in here. God does everything through Jesus Christ. He accomplishes everything through Jesus Christ and he lays the gift on the table. Salvation is available to you. Pick up the gift. That's the only thing he requires of us. You pick up the gift. It's now your gift. So, and that's how the Bible presents it, the gift of salvation. So then the question is, does God take that gift back? And the Bible is saying to us rather consistently and forthrightly, no. Because when you when you pick up the gift, you are now a member. I'm th- talking about thirty-three things that happen to you when you put your faith in Christ. One of them you become a member of the family of God. Number two, you, you have a new identity, you're in Christ. And then the end of Romans the very last two verses of Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. And so, I mean, he just, he goes, Paul goes to great lengths in those two verses. And so the answer to that is no, but as our Heavenly Father, and that's what Hebrews 12 will say when we get to Hebrews 12 about 2022, but when we get there, you will see that the heavenly Father disciplines, and the goal of discipline is not punitive; it's restorative. It's to restore us, and it's it's up to God. God's the one who does that. Um, so that's a short answer. That's a long theological issue that likes lots of discourse. Books have been written about it, but that's the simplest way to put it. Rob. What right do you have to ask a question? You haven't been here for... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just kidding.
1: <laughs> um, well, I, I'd like to refresh. The, what verses were those that uh, said nothing Ro- uh,
0: The last two verses of Romans chapter 8. I think it's 38 and 39. <laughs> so
2: thank you. Uh, because that is an issue that troubles many people. Uh, and you know,
1: what about someone who is Christian and then falls off and declares themselves agnostic or atheist and starts not believing in Christ? What protects them at this point?
0: Well, you know, I mean, you're asking something very generally, so I'm not quite sure exactly how to respond to that, but there is a verse in 1 John, chapter 4, I forget the exact verse there. Um, it may even be in chapter 5, but John is writing to his church, his people in Ephesus, where he was the leader of the church there. And as you, you know, um, I'm paraphrasing, he you know, there are a number of false teachers who, um, who have left us. And they've left us, they've gone out from among us, but you know, they were never really of us. So, th- this is understood as an important verse that there are often people who profess Christianity but don't possess Christ for whatever reasons I'm a Christian You know, my mom's been a Christian my great grandma was a Christian my great great so I'm a Christian well that's not the requirement but okay and you faithfully go to church you teach Sunday school class but you've never trusted Christ and all of a sudden you get into a pattern of sin or whatever the case can be and you just say, you know, I'm renouncing my Christianity. I'm no longer a Christian. Or whatever. Mm-hmm. I abandoned the church, whatever. Only the Lord knows a person's heart. I simply could never, ever, ever take on the responsibility. But the text of the Scripture teaches that there are people who profess but do not possess. And so in that kind of a case, I have no idea whether that would be true in a person's life. But sometimes that's, that's, really, that's really the case. They never really were a Christian. Jesus talks about that in Matthew chapter 7 very end of the Sermon on the Mount on the day of judgment you're going to stand before me and say but Lord I did this and this and this in your name and Jesus says you know depart from me I never knew you Gnosko I never had a relationship with you
1: I know someone who fears for their relationship with Christ they're not walking away but they're, they're
2: Very
0: fearful. Well, there's a very simple antidote to that fear. Get on your knees and say, Jesus, you are my Savior. I believe you died for my sins. I believe that it was on my behalf. I want to be certain that I am in a clear, distinct, definitive relationship with you. I mean, it's just, I mean, to make sure and start. If not, easy. if you're afraid, go to your knees and beg the Lord's forgiveness and say, "I want to restart. I want to start my relationship with you. I'm not sure. I'm renouncing it. I may have been a Christian, I, but if I am, I want to renew it. If not, Lord, I want to start. I want to make sure I'm a Christian." I mean, I've prayed that prayer with a couple of guys over the 37 years of what I've been doing. They're just not sure. Okay, let's get let's be certain right now. No big deal to it. Don't have to go to church. This is "Right now, let's make sure." Do you believe this happened? Jesus says in John six forty-seven, "He that believes has eternal life." Do you believe? Do you really believe that Jesus died for your sin? Do you really believe His resurrection? Yes, yes. Do you believe? You have eternal life. Settled. Now start moving forward. I don't mean to sound crash, but that's the bottom line. That really is the bottom line. If this guy's afraid, he can quickly resolve that fear. Verse one of chapter five. first word of verse one is four. Now that's an important structural marker in the original language. He is now about to explain this idea that Jesus is our high priest. He declared it in the verses we spent a half hour studying uh, this, this, this this day together. I expected to be in chapter 6 by now, but you keep holding me up. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm really kidding. I don't mean that. I, I love your question. What's that? You're
1: suffering greatly. Right yeah,
0: now. right. Yeah. So what he does and in, in your notes, I, I try to lay that out too. These first couple of verses, he reviews the qualifications of a high priest in Israel. He's not talking about Jesus. He's talking about a high priest in Israel. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Okay? From from the divine perspective, who appoints them? God does. God appointed the Levitical priests, all of the sons of Levi, the descendants of Levi, to be the priests. And their function was to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Let's put that in one word. They're to be the intercessors. They're an interse- see. They're to be the mediators. That's their role. You could put it this way. Joel isn't here, but I'm going to use another piece of paper that belongs to the First National Bank. And they're going to let me do this. Here's Yahweh. That's the name of God. Here's the people of Israel. The Levites are in between. They are the mediators between God, the intercessors. And both, both words would apply here. They're the mediators, the intercessors between God and me. Notice how he says it. On behalf, or rather, on behalf of men in relation to God. And what are they to do? Two is a purpose. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins and what does that mean you 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 have something that's happened into your life and it's just you're so thankful and you're just praising the lord for what he had done for you a tremendous harvest of your crops or um your your child had been lost and you find your child uh, in a cave and god preserved him and so what do you do you present a gift to god a thank offering and you take a lamb or you take a pigeon, or I mean, it could be anything depending on your status, and you offer a thank, a gift to God, thanking the Lord. And then the sacrifices would relate to, of course, like Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, Passover, all of those. The priests do it. You don't do it. They do it. So he's just saying, now remember, that's what the high priest did. And secondly, verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. The high priests are humans. The high priests have the same problems you have. Same pro- the pre- high priests have the same sins you have. When before, As you remember, before the Levite, but let's just use the very specific example, before the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies in the Day of Atonement, was the very first thing he had to do. He had to offer a sacrifice for his own personal sin. Then he would offer, you see what I'm saying? See, so he's the same, he's got the same issues you do. He's got sin, he's got to deal with it. So, and but he can understand because he has the same problems you do, the same weaknesses you do. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. God instituted this as an act of his grace, because as you know, and if you don't know, now you do know, the whole system of the Levitical Code was to enable the average Israelite to walk with God. It isn't about salvation. You, you're not saved by going in and doing the sacrifice. That's not what saved you. That is how you walk with God. You understood this is how God's taking care of your sins and so on. So it's just reviewing what everybody knew. Everybody well, back to this. Everybody, everybody that is here looking at it, yep, yeah, that's what it was. That's exactly how it worked. Got it. Just a review for them. But now, now he says, What about Jesus? Because I just said, the author is saying, I just said Jesus is our high priest. So how does this fit? Verse 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said. In other words, the Father appointed him high priest. What are the proofs? He uses two verses. One, Psalm 2, 7. The second one, Psalm 110, verse 4. First, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. He also says in another place, "You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek." So Christ is both a son and a priest. <coughs> he's the son of God, and he's a priest. The Father appointed him, and by that we're now we're going to find out what this means after the order of Melchizedek coming up. That's coming up in the next chapter, so just don't ask me any questions about that right now. There's a whole chapter devoted to it. But he's he's doing something here that's really significant because both of these passages, a Jewish person would be very familiar with, both of these passages are messianic you are not what I mean by messianic. They're pointing to the Messiah. They're about the Messiah. And by the way, Psalm one hundred and ten is the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. So he, he's really he's doing it. Oh, okay. I Understand the human priest, the high priest. I Understand the qualifications. Understand what they did. So also Jesus, he is appointed by the Father to be the priest. But he's not only a priest after the order of Melchizedek; he's also a son the son of God. So there's something unique about him. You couldn't say that of the high priest of Israel. They weren't sons of God. They were appointed as priests. They're Levites. So, in the days, okay, now he's established his position by the decree of God the Father. In the incarnation as it says there in verse 7, in the days of his flesh, in the incarnation. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Now, there are two things about verse 7 that are sort of important. Number one, we have a little bit of an insight into the prayer life of Jesus. He's the Son of God, Appointed to be the high priest of the order of Melchizedek, but yet he's praying. But he's the God man, but yet he's praying. And the Father hears his prayers because of his, the ESV, which is what I'm reading from, translates it reverence. What's that focusing on? The piety and practices of Jesus. Did Jesus pray? Yes. Did Jesus fast? Yes. Did Jesus engage in the spiritual disciplines? Yes. If you would use a word that nobody uses anymore, did Jesus exhibit the, the, the important piety of someone who walked with God? We don't use the word piety anymore, but the answer is yes. So what is the author what is the, what is the author trying to do here? In his incarnation? In his incarnation, those 33 years he was on planet Earth, which culminates in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, he exhibited all the piety of a faithful steward of God. And the Father honored that. So that leads to sort of a significant applicational question. If prayer was that important to Jesus... Should prayer be important to me? If talking to the Father was that important and that central to Jesus in his incarnation, should it be important to me? Yeah <laughs> So it's just kind of a, it's kind of a significant application point. Now he's, he's trying to do something here to just help you to understand, is Jesus a faithful high priest? Yes. He's unique. He's a son after the order of Melchizedek. He's not after the order of Aaron. We'll get to that in a minute. And he gets into something second. Although he was a son, and just, I mean, that's declaring something about his uniqueness as a unique son of God. Although he's a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now that at first that could be a little troubling, but um, did, think of it this way. Did Jesus exhibit total, complete obedience to his heavenly Father? Absolutely. He was sent by the Father to do one thing, die a substitutionary death on the cross, be resurrected. Was he faithful? He was sent by the Father to be the Messiah of Israel, the Anointed of Israel. Was he faithful in doing that? He prays, John 17, the high priestly prayer, or the prayer, I'm talking about some of the recorded prayers we have of Jesus in the the Gospels. He's in Gethsemane, hours from his death. Father, isn't there a plan B? Isn't there another way to do this? I mean, Father, can't you take this cup from me? the cup of wrath but not my will your will be done you sent me here for the purpose this is the relational difference between the members of the trinity and he prays and he goes and sees the disciples fall asleep he goes back, prays it again and you see this extraordinary prayer life of Jesus but does he exhibit obedience even in the midst of suffering yes and so the author is trying to say that the consistent pattern of obedience through the sufferings of Jesus, we can say he's learning obedience to suffering. He's responding constantly in obedience to the Father. Does he qualify? To, no, I'm not going to do anything more on the board. Does he qualify to be my mediator? I mean, that's the bottom line question of this. Does Jesus qualify to be my high priest? So far, my answer is yes. Yep, yeah, I'm having a pretty high level of confidence about this. And then he does one more thing. <clears throat> and being made perfect, and the word in perfect in Greek is teleon. It means mature. He, achieving his purpose. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So because of his actions as a faithful high priest, prayer, constant prayer, exhibiting the piety of a faithful Jew. He was obedient to everything the Father asked him to do, even in the midst of intense suffering. He meets the qualifications. So he's the source of eternal life. He's our Savior. But the author is approaching that through the grid of how a Jewish person is going to look at that. And that's why he will say, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He met the qualifications. Now again, if it's all right with you, I don't want to deal with the order of Melchizedek yet. But it's very important. His priesthood is not after the order of Aaron. In other words, a Levitical priesthood. It's a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. So we're going to have to find out who he is, what that means and why that's important. but if i if you're all right, I'm gonna set that aside to, till we get to the next chapter. Are you with me? Pardon me Yes, absolutely, you must. It's God's will for your life that you come back next week. But we're gonna to to, we're gonna take a we're gonna take a, a, a little bit of a break because five eleven, All the way through chapter 6, verse 20, is another warning passage. But before we get to something I want to give you then, but are there any questions? Does everybody understand what the author has done here? He's declared Jesus our high priest. The end of chapter 4. He's now laid out the normal qualifications of high priest in Israel, and does Jesus meet those qualifications? Is he a reputable high priest to be your mediator? And what the author wants them to conclude is, yes, he is. He's the son of God, but often he has the order of Melchizedek. And he meets every requirement. He is my faithful high priest, my mediator, my intercessor. Now he's about to take up. He's going to go on another bunny trail, which isn't really a bunny trail. It's going to be a warning. Can you
1: say just a little bit more about uh, the concept of being made perfect? I mean, he was the perfect sacrifice, but was there something that happened you know, in the prescription that know, enhanced that or changed that or established that? Or
0: uh, no, um. <clears throat> maybe I'm not asking. Well, no, you are, and I know. I I know what you're. I know what you're wrestling with, and why I'm, I'm trying to think about it. How do I want to answer this question where it doesn't make it more confusing? Let me start again with um, the, the word. That, this is the problem for us in English. When we when we hear the word "perfect" in English, uh, particularly in religious or theological con- uh, context, we think of sinless. And so when you read, and being made sinless, as if the inference draw is, well, he wasn't sinless, but now he is sinless. And that, that's not what he's saying. So he's saying, in light of the fact, in terms of his prayers and supplications that he talked about in verse 7, and the Father just acknowledges his piety and his devotion and his spiritual discipline and piety, and also in the fact that he was obedient to the Father and learned to be throughout his earthly life, time after time after time after time after time. Is every time he obedient? Do you see in his life a pattern of learning obedience? Yes. Is he responding? What? Yes. Being made perfect. To lay on in Greek means coming to the end, coming to the purpose, coming to the design. For which God had sent His Son, and so if I were if I were to really embellish it and paraphrase it, I would say something like this: and being made or having come to the point of why the Father sent Him, He's achieved the goal, He's achieved the teleon, He's achieved the purpose, He's achieved the end. He's therefore the source of eternal salvation. So, I mean, that's the idea. And and a Greek Jew reading this is going to, uh, Aristotle talked about that all the time. In Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, he writes constantly of the uh, telos, the telos of life, the goal and purpose of life. What is your goal and purpose in life? And what, 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 what the author is doing here is he's taking that word and saying, as Jesus came to the end, Realizing the purpose and goal the Father had for him in his life, his incarnation as the God-man, that unique son, that unique priest, he therefore becomes the source of eternal salvation for all humans. That's the flow of this. And it's horrible to translate it. I mean, really, it's horrible to translate it without quickly creating confusion. So... I hope I reduced a little bit of the confusion. I down here purpose, but yeah. It, but it's still, it was
1: still a, a verse, you know, just a bit confusing to me. The, here's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies that, that, that came together at that point.
0: And, and because that teleon had been reached, that, that perfection, that perfect goal had been attained by the Father through the Son. The Son then becomes the source of eternal salvation. I mean, it's it's wordy and it's 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 almost uh, it's almost confusing in English to try to explain. But that's the best I can do, Jim. I'm sorry it is. Um, Some people say, "Well,
2: this was Jesus. It was easy for Jesus because he was the Son of God."
0: What was easy for Jesus? The sacrifice, you mean? All that?
2: that Oh, I see. Do everything he did because he was God's son. That was easy. But now for me, I've got uphill. This is an uphill feel for me because I'm I'm not a son of God. How do you, because some people I think might think that it was easy for Jesus because he was a son of God.
0: Uh, yes, I, that's that I can I can understand that the challenge there is to help people understand that when you read the gospel accounts of Jesus this wasn't easy for Jesus it wasn't easy for Jesus it involved I mean for him for him to go through everything he went through uh, was just as difficult in terms of enduring physical pain enduring loneliness enduring betrayal Uh, It tells us he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, agonizomai is the Greek word, agonizing to the point of sweating blood. That doesn't indicate to me it's easy, that his sacrifice was easy. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, the suffering of Jesus Christ in a substitutionary way for you and me was extremely agonizingly difficult and painful. And in his walk of obedience through his, his, uh, well, we don't know much about his life up till the early 30s, but those three years, as Jesus endures rebuke, endures the temptations of Satan, uh, and so on. I mean, this isn't easy. So he was like fully man, like he it was said, yes. like any one of
2: the
0: new yes. As the author said earlier at the end of chapter 4, yet without sin. But I mean, but that, but that doesn't mean it's easy. I mean, it's it's hard because the God-Man is so unique. There, there is no other being like Jesus, fully God, fully Man, united one person, which is what the, the incarnation is. And yet, you know, what the Bible is that presents those three years of Jesus' public ministry. These are difficult. He experiences hunger. He experiences thirst. He experiences weariness and so on. Okay, what does Jesus do in Mark's gospel, the longest, most difficult day of his public ministry? What does he do at the end of the day? He goes up to Mount Arbel and prays. I wouldn't. I'd go to bed. You know, I, mean, I don't mean to make light of this, but how does Jesus deal with these things? How does he deal with the agony of, of ministering to uh, people who hate him? People who want him dead. That's what the Gospels are all about. And the author is saying he learned disobedience through his suffering. He he exhibits obedience, 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 obedience. There's no evidence of disobedience or rebellion against God. The apex is Gethsemane, you know, as as we we mentioned earlier. (coughs) So, I mean, I resist the idea that it was easy. It was easy for the God-man to do what he did. It wasn't easy. It cost him everything. Uh, Who in the world would want to leave the glory of heaven to come down to this rotten place? Seriously, you know, I mean, you, why would you want to do that? Because he loves his rebellious image bearers, and he doesn't want them to wallow in sin. He wants them to be with him in heaven, and he'll do anything to get them back, including the cross.
1: The of Jesus. Jesus
2: was perfect in, in, in current
0: English interpretation of perfect. You wouldn't have yeah. <laughs> Yep. I've often st- thought about uh, Jesus at Lazarus' tomb, and it says he's weeping, and he's sad. Well, what's he weeping and sad about? There's the emotion of a good friend of his dying, but maybe too, he's weeping and sad because he's got to bring him back. That's made up. That's not in the Bible. Now listen, we're going to start, we'll get started. We still have five minutes. We're going to get started in chapter five, chapter, 11, chapter 5, verse 11, which goes on through 620. Remember, in this chart that I gave you, which I told you never to lose, ever, 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 and I don't think any of you have, because if you do lose, you owe the Steadfast Bible Fellowship Church Capital Campaign $1,000. We've looked at if you, if you do not keep your focus on the word, you drift from the word, first warning passage. Doubt the word now. The third warning passage is going to have the theme being dull to the world. And this is a very, very important section because it's one of the most confusing sections in the Bible. This chapter, the earlier verses of chapter 6, has divided the church over one issue. So what I've done, I, I've taught the book of Hebrews, I've the entire book on PowerPoint slides and they it all marked up so I just decided to give you a copy of it and we're going to use this as our guide as we go through these, these couple of difficult chapters together, so it is absolutely imperative you may not lose this, if you lose it, I don't know what you're going to do if <laughs> anything will cause you to lose your salvation it's if you lose it <laughs> <laughs> so i us send that over to so, I'm sorry. So, if you take a look at this with me, it's got several pages front and back, and it's got a lot of slides of explanation and so on. So, what I want to do is I want to use these to um, do the best I possibly can to explain what are some very difficult verses, especially as we move into chapter six, that divide the cleavage between. Christians who say you can lose your salvation and those who say you can is about verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6. Actually 1 through 6 of chapter 6 the whole section. But I want I want to set us up because the 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 warning really starts with verse 11 of chapter 5 and goes through chapter 6 verse 20. So now I talk for a little bit. Are you pretty much with me why I gave you this? I want to do the best I can possibly do. To explain this, so I'm using now this. If you have your own Bible, you certainly can. But I'm using this. These are the slides. If I were, if I were teaching this using PowerPoint, I'd have it up on PowerPoint slides. And this is so I just decided to run off the slide for you. And in the printer at church, I even hit color, so the color would show up. So, you know, my church is most magnanimous in letting me do this. So, I've entitled this The Danger of Apostasy, 5, 1, 11 through 620, warning number three, which refers to this being dull toward the word. Now, verses 11 through 14 begin with kind of a rebuke, but it's really a call to maturity. So, let me read 11 through 14. And again, you should be able to, if I have something coded red, that's important. And then the blue are little notes I put in the middle or at the end of each one of these little segments of scripture. About this, what he's just been talking about in 5 through 10, the high priesthood of Jesus, a profound doctrinal truth. About this, I have, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain. Well, you would agree with that. Since you have become dull of hearing. So this is the theme of verse 11 through 620. How are they responding to the word of God? There's a dullness in terms of their response to the word of God. Now he explains that. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. The word oracles there is really the Greek word logia. We get logos and logic from that. So Do you see what he's saying? I want to teach you more. I want to teach you more in-depth things. But but you become dull. Your spiritual growth and march to maturity has slowed down. By this time, you ought to be teaching the Word of God. But you're not, because you still need somebody to teach you the basic things of of the faith, the ABCs of the faith. It's like, you know, you have somebody that's in seventh grade and they can't read. Now, I'm using an extreme example, but, okay, you can't read. Well, you can't go on to further education. You can't go on to maturity in terms of intellectual. you got to go back to the ABCs and learn how to read, learn how to write. That's kind of what the author saying. By now, you should have grown significantly in your faith. But no. You still need somebody to feed you baby food. My little grandson Tommy is—I mean, he loves to eat. He absolutely loves to eat. Do you know what? He no longer wants baby food. He won't take baby food. Whatever the—he's seven months old. Whatever the family's eating, and we're so proud of him because he's moving on from baby food to steak and mashed potatoes and all those things. Now I'm being a little funny, but I'm trying to get. You see, this is a rebuke. I can't teach you the deep things of the faith. You're still at the point where you're learning your ABCs. You need milk, not solid food. There you get the metaphor. You're so immature that you're still feeding on the milk of the word. The ABCs, to mix my metaphors. When you should be eating... The steak and mashed potatoes. Which I don't know if you like those, but it's a good hearty meal. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. I've got to stop. But his challenge is, you need to grow up spiritually. And he is going to know Began kind of a little bit of a discourse of the danger in the spiritual life for remaining a child. Why is that a serious issue? And man, I don't, I don't. I'm not being accusatory here because i don't have anything specific in mind, but I do know this because I've been in ministry for 37 years. There are too many people in the church today that are still babies, and they've been going to church for 30 years. And they they just, they do not know, they do not understand the basic doctrines of the church, they don't understand the basic issues important to faith, and they're like little children, so they're not growing. That you, as one of the reasons I I do classes like this, is if men want to study the Bible in depth, I'm here. I'll, I'll teach it. If nobody shows up, then I'll start teaching something somewhere else. But because I believe with all my heart what the author is saying here. God does not want us to stay a baby in the faith. He wants us to grow up. And it's it's understanding the word of God that is, is the key to that. And that's why this, this section is hard, but it's, it's really important. And that's why I gave you all this stuff so that we can work our way slowly and methodically through this. Got it. Okay, don't lose this because I can't go back to my church and say. I'm going to pray and we'll get out of here. Father, this is a a great passage we've studied today. That Jesus is our high priest. He's our mediator. He's our intercessor. We don't need any the high priest of the ancient Israel like they did. And for a Jew. In AD six, the early 60s, hearing this and trying to understand this. This is so revolutionary. So life-changing. So thoroughgoing in in the completion of the redemptive plan of God. Jesus is the Messiah, but he's more than our Messiah. He's our high priest. A radical, radical thought for them to process, but it's true for us too. Jesus is our high priest, so that we now have 24-7 access to God. We go right to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace of God. Thank you so much for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for being willing to come. Holy Spirit, thank you for coming as the signer of the new covenant, indwelling us, guiding us, teaching us, empowering us, enabling us, encouraging us. Oh God the Father, thank you. God the Son, thank you. God the Spirit, thank you. Your work is inextricably linked, intertwined in accomplishing our redemption. And for that, we will eternally praise you. Thank you for these men who are willing to study, they are willing to process and work through some of the hard things of Scripture. That is pleasing to you, and it helps them to grow as well. So we praise you for this time together. Dismiss us with your blessing. Take care of us as we go our separate ways. May we be good representatives of you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. See you next week.